how I became involved with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Two foundational documents reflecting my deepest sense of the individual in politics are reflected in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. The Declaration says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. U.S. Constitution, First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The threads that connect these documents are the rights of free thought and free expression. These include a number of related rights, such as the ability to do research, to study, to propound, to argue, publicize one's views without harassment. These rights are specified in that sentence from the Declaration and assured by the First Amendment. Because of that sentence in the Declaration, we see that these rights are not a gift of government, not something available when some license has been given or when other hurdles have been met. They inhere in all persons. There are certain very limited exceptions for fighting words and for libel and slander. Through the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, these rights, these rights belong to the people and are valid against encroachment by the states as well. These rights have not always been observed or respected. The years since the Constitution was adopted are to a considerable extent the history of their realization, sometimes at the cost of very bloody struggles. It seemed that by the 1960s, as a nation, we reached a kind of high-water mark for freedom of speech. We could find persons of all political stripes who took it as axiomatic that I disagree with everything you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. This was truly a momentous achievement in human history. Not only were the rights of self-expression finally accepted broadly as natural rights, but there was a widespread agreement of the utility of free expression in advancing the general welfare and economic progress of society. Unfortunately, with the rise of the new left in the late 60s, a counter-principle was set afoot. Is entirely without an absolute foundation, but simply selfish. If I don't like what you say, I can shut you down. This claim was supported by appeals to social justice or as a way of crushing various social evils. Speech with which I disagree becomes a form of violence, and having to be on the same planet where someone is permitted to say things I dislike threatens me, so I'm entitled to shut them down. This reflected the inventalization of the society and of the educational system that really caught hold in the succeeding years. Campuses in the early 70s were often rent by demonstrations and loud dissent designed, designed to shut down unpopular speakers. This phase one, I would consider to have been the time when university trustees and presidents generally tried hard to hold the line against suppression of speech. I would call this the period the decline of the old guard. Most of the time, the old guard lost those struggles to replace with cooler Hipper leadership that sought to pacify the demonstrators by flattering them that their concerns were very real, their anger very justified or understandable, and by caving in to a lot of their demands. <clears throat> in a few short years, the violent demonstrators got what they wanted. This included big new expenditures for programs they preferred and the neutering of administrations and trustees. The second phase I call the accommodation phase. 
I would say it lasted 15 to 20 years, varying considerably from place to place, where accommodation was the norm and general principles were discarded. Administrations developed a range of defensive measures that greatly curtailed free speech, or at least the speech that the radicals didn't like. There were safe spaces, rules about applying for permits to have a demonstration, strict rules about the distribution of flyers, new rules in the dorms, proliferation of programs designed to re-educate certain groups, wide range of campus opinion policing, in short, wide range of measures designed to avoid confrontation and keep the radicals appeased. Those administrations were quick learners and soon absorbed the lessons of their predecessors' troubles. It was a definite period of reduced activism directed against them as a result. But wants and demands are elastic. Another phase of campus violence returned in the early 2000s following the 9-11 attacks and the start of the Iraq War. This time, few university presidents were shut out, few administration buildings were taken over or bombed. This period I call the collaboration phase. In this phase, administrations actively sought to work with the radicals, tightening and strengthening speech controls that were previously evolved during the accommodation phase, and generally refusing to assure the rights of any speaker who might come to campus who aroused the ire of the radicals. Various tactics were devised for this end, such as limiting organizations the administration didn't like, charging prohibitively high security fees if an organization invited a controversial speaker, providing comfort and assistance to underlying to the radicals that their discomforts were entirely understandable and seldom pointing out the value of having a variety of opinions flow at a place supposedly designed to provide an education and teach critical thinking. One could read almost every day during the collaboration phase of new craziness, new hypersensitivities, new bigotry, new intolerance. The universities did little to sanction those who shouted down the speakers they didn't like. It was indeed a cowardly time. In many cases, it appeared that, that an administration viewed the intolerant students as its very own agents in the deconstruction of the very society that nurtured them. This period saw the rebranding of every activity and academic program, the redirecting of every effort to highlight the university's ever-expanding commitment to the triple deities of diversity, inclusion, and sustainability. Unfortunately, this guaranteed that though there might be more diversity of skin color in the student body, there was to be very little diversity of thought. It guaranteed that everything would be branded with the mark of sustainability, while universities were unable to control costs or to plan for the coming demographic crunch that will do many of the less powerful institutions. The frenzy for the triple deities also meant that all campus life was diverted away from the mission of education towards something else. This was no good thing indeed, given how many distractions students already face in the normal course of growing up, finding mates and developing some plan to contribute to society. Surely a penalty has been paid in the nature and quality of academic work itself. I found the progression from the accommodation phase to the collaboration phase to be a gigantic betrayal of the nation's faith in its educational system. After 2000, I began looking for ways to try and support the forces that could be assembled to support the inherent rights of self-expression. Among those I came across was an organization designed expressly to address the abuses of free speech on campus, namely the Nonpartisan Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. Among many things, FIRE became a bulletin board for publicizing abuses, great and small, and for investigating speech codes on campuses to see where they might tend to suppress student rights and become an effective advocate for those rights. In the beginning, 
It seemed that the most common instance was an administration punishing a staff member or student for saying something it didn't like, often for criticizing that administration. There were some religious or conservative schools that were guilty of these acts, but from the beginning, the great majority of cases were expressions of typical campus leftism as imposed by a college administration. Many of these cases were resolved through the efforts to fire. Unfortunately, no amount of success could dampen the inherent urge to control what students think or say. The second aspect of FIRE's work is the review of campus speech codes, grading them from green, no offense, to orange, potentially imposing threats of speech, to red, definitely doing so. These are my characterizations, not those of FIRE. Over time, many speech codes were revised to reflect the values of free speech embodied in our Declaration and Bill of Rights. Technically, private schools are not subject to the Bill of Rights, only state schools, but in practice all are. I have attended various conferences of FIRE and met its organizers and many bright students who are widely interested in its work. This is encouraging to see. The protesters who abuse other students' rights, whose general line the administration approves, often get off with the merest slap. University administrations have generally shown cowardice in such cases. Students who are found diverging from the official line are dealt with swiftly and severely. Universities have shown tremendous courage when it comes to punishing views they dislike even going out of their way to respond to fake racial incidents as if they were real. FIRE has worked in this area, but the situation remains problematic. It remains problematic because of the broad failure of the educational institutions themselves to teach and to demonstrate the importance of free speech rights. They have become factories of conditional rights. The view that your rights only extend as far as you support the current regime's current line. It remains worrisome indeed that this betrayal has gone so far.